Say, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney. Tuesday was, without hyperbole, the biggest news day of 2018. Within minutes, President Trump's former attorney, Michael Cohen, entered a guilty plea related to hush money payments, and his former campaign manager, Paul Manafort, was found guilty in his fraud trial. What does this all mean for the Trump administration? A little later, we'll be joined by a former federal prosecutor to break down what to expect in the months ahead. But before we're joined by our guest, I want to talk about all of this with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Woo! Hey, guys. Yeah, it's been an exhausting week, guys. <laughs> I'm excited to see how this week is portrayed in the inevitable movie about all of this. <laughs> who plays the various people, oh, who plays us. Great. I mean, I assume this podcast will factor in. Um, yeah. Who really, would you want to play you in a movie? God knows. Oh, I don't gosh. know. Alex, do you have an answer? Uh, I mean, I've all, I mean, my... I mean, like, if I could go back in time and do, like, a younger Topher Grace. Oh, I like it. <laughs> Not I Topher like Grace it. right now. Sure. He's busy playing David Duke. Sure. Ooh. Um, I've always been uh, always been a fan of his work. I don't know. Um, this is maybe not an accurate depiction of me as a person, but I would pick Jennifer Garner because she's a fellow West Virginian and she's oh, also yeah. brunette. That's nice. So I'd go with that. And Bill will be played by uh, Nick Foles. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Famed thespian Nick Foles. Sure. Uh, anyway, so yeah, uh, lots of news. Probably movie worthy. Well, no one, yeah. Let's real, break down this movie worthy news. Super Tuesday. Um, so Tuesday was obviously the 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 focal point of the week. It was a real whirlwind um, and maybe a watershed moment for the Trump presidency. Definitely possible. Um, yeah. Two of the president's closest uh, aides, confidants, former associates, um, uh, quickly became felons uh, within about <laughs> within about a crazy two minute span. I All think the- that's the craziest <laughs> part that it happened just. Back to back. There was no room to breathe in the Moment. newsroom. It was one right after the other. All the president's con men I read right. somewhere. I don't know. <laughs> Don's cons. Yeah. Oh, That yeah. was the post. All, oh, the, pre- okay. all the president's uh, henchmen was, henchmen in- was oh, okay. the Daily News. All right. Um, so which yeah. ones are we talking about here? Uh, the uh, You don't want to say one's bigger than the other one, but maybe the bigger one was was Michael Cohen, um, yeah. the, the longtime personal lawyer to Trump. He was his so-called fixer. Still funny that we have a president who has a fixer. Yeah, yeah. He, he, um, he was not the basis for Michael Clayton because Michael Cohen doesn't appear to be very good at this job. No, but um, in any case, but he was seen as Trump's most loyal. Aide. Yeah, he was the guy who said he would take a bullet for Trump. That's right. Yeah. Um, so he, uh, around 4 p.m. on Tuesday, he pleaded guilty um, to breaking campaign finance laws and committing uh, other types of crimes in arranging these payments to buy the silence of. Women who said, uh, most notably Stormy Daniels, yeah. but two women who said that they had had um, affairs with Trump. The idea being that by arranging these payments, it was a campaign finance, it was a campaign donation that was not reported. Yeah, and that had been in the ether, of course. Everybody's been following that story for a while, um, so it wasn't terribly surprising that but he... No, but no charges had been brought against him yet. Exactly. Right? So, yeah, I mean, it was, it was surprising that he pled guilty to that, and it was even more surprising then... That not only in in the course of pleading guilty to this, he directly implicated um, the president, President Trump. I right. mean, he said he, he said in coordination with and at the direction of a candidate for federal office, which gets us to right. um, uh, the funniest part of of the plea deal. If you're not familiar with the way this stuff goes. In federal indictments and plea deals like this, if you're not a party to the actual legal action that's taking place, you get, like, anonymity there. There, You're named, like, Individual A or Congressman B or whatever. But sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes it doesn't quite work. This is an actual (laughs) passage from the Michael Cohen plea agreement. In or about January 2017, Cohen left the company and began holding himself out as the personal attorney to Individual 1, 
who at that point had become president of the United States. <laughs> I can't even read it. I know. Well, I mean, it's so funny when the the, the legalese butts up against just the fact that there's only one president. So right. one at a time. That's how we do it in this country, <laughs> so, for better and worse. The other big event. Yeah. Uh, was it two minutes before Cohen? I forget now, actually. It, it was funny. I think it's uh, such a blur, but I think it was two minutes. So in a Cohen. in a courtroom in Alexandria, Virginia, right, um, where this was not a surprise, a trial had been going on for for a week prior, and mm-hmm. we were awaiting a conviction on Paul Manafort, who was the the former chairman of the Trump campaign, pretty yeah. briefly, yeah, uh, who was charged last year as part of special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation with a whole litany of crimes. We've talked about them at length yeah. on the on the show. Campaign chairman, jacket connoisseur. But on Tuesday, he was convicted <laughs> on eight different counts of financial fraud. Right. The jury um, was uh, unable to decide 10 other counts. He had been on trial for 18 counts mm-hmm. um, and declared a mistrial as to those. News has this now was... come out this week that, uh, or in the, in the days afterwards, that there was apparently one jury. Right. Uh, juror. Juror, who, yeah. Um, who was really just uncertain. Otherwise, on, on it would those... have been all 18. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And this was pretty interesting, just from a little inside the newsroom perspective. Um, Brian Koenig was uh, waiting on this verdict down in D.C. Right. And he had to send back missives that said things like, well, they've gotten, uh, the judge has gotten a note from the jurors yeah. saying like, what happens if we can't yeah. reach right. a verdict right. here? So that went on a little bit, but then, yeah, the the one holdout is right. how we ended also, up. Also, um, uh, there reporters were going insane on social media, but uh, Ryan Riley's the justice reporter for the Huffington Post, and he mm-hmm. was covering the Manafort trial, and he very funnily said, uh, I can't believe I just watched the president's former campaign manager get indicted on eight counts, and it wasn't even the most important thing happening in a federal courthouse at that moment, <laughs> uh, which is very funny. Well, it's nuts, and we'll talk about it way later in the show, at the end of the show, right. but uh, there was also a sitting congressman who was indicted that we day. We will get um, there. Um, busy, busy day. But but um, Paul, but Big Paul's legal troubles are not over yet, are yeah, they, Bill? <laughs> Big Paul's still in the game. Uh, um, right. Manafort, uh, so th- the question now becomes whether or not the prosecutors will attempt to retry those 10 charges. Mm-hmm. Right. But before then, probably, uh, Manafort is scheduled to sit for another trial next month on a whole different slate of criminal charges, which uh, obstruction of justice, failure to register as a foreign agent, which we which have we, talked about on the show, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Uh, money laundering conspiracy. So like a whole nother Good set stuff. of just very different, but also quite illegal Crimes. alleged right. things. <laughs> right. Um, so, so there's like so much going on here. Can we also just for everybody listening, because it's gotten a little muddy, this yeah. whole there's just too much news all at once. Yeah. So can we break down exactly like who was prosecuting Cohen? What was going yeah. on with, right. Mueller, with Mueller and Manafort? Because it, it's all getting a little mixed together. So the easy breakdown is um, uh, the, the stuff involving Cohen was discovered during the Mueller investigation. But they did what is called it was a, it was a referral mm-hmm. to um, because it was not directly sort of part of their their coverage, they referred it to the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York. They took over that investigation, and that is who um, handled the Cohen aspects here, the Mm -hmm. the guilty plea in New York. Um, Manafort was directly the Mueller team. They put the trial on. They are dealing with Manafort. So um, that's sort of the – that's why one was in New York, one was in Virginia. um, And next month's trial will be in D.C. federal court. Right. I think that helps break down um, exactly how this all spooled out. Yeah. But one of the things that's um, 
pretty interesting here is that none of this hits on the core of the Mueller inquiry, right? right. Mueller's core probe is A, whether or not Trump and people associated with the Trump campaign conspired with efforts by the Russian government to meddle in the 2016 election. Mm -hmm. Um, And then subsequently, whether or not Trump obstructed justice by trying to stop that investigation. Yeah. Um, neither of these, these are both tangential to that. Mm-hmm. They, they, right. they, they were, they, they were, they came up during this. Um, and Trump was quick to point that out. Correct. This week. Yeah. Um, but there's still a really, really big deal. Of course. Um, for one, there's been an effort by the Trump White House and by Republicans on Capitol Hill to call into question the, the point of the Mueller probe to, um, you know, Trump has been a little bit more direct about it, but other, other folks have said, this is dragging. This is, what is he doing? It's a fishing expedition. Yeah. X, Y, Z. Um, this, this proves is, that the stuff is real. This is a real, if, if it's a witch hunt, they're catching a lot of witches. Um, <laughs> right. So it's, it's a, it's, you know, for them, uh, for, for whether, for how this moves forward, this is a big boost for the Mueller probe. And it's a big blow to folks who were trying to question the, the necessity of it. Um, the other thing that it, that it, means and that that a lot of people have talked about um, is that it raises the the question of whether or not these two folks will now work against the president mm-hmm. on these issues going forward that you know both of these guys are facing really they really are, long they are up against it considerably prison yeah. sentences and uh, I mean Manafort in particular um, and yeah. and Cohen you know Cohen seems more likely because he's seemingly has made all these statements in the media that he's that he's you know that he's looking he seems like he's looking for a deal yeah right Manafort has yeah. hung has hung hard thus far as the president has has said and yeah. um uh, so that so it, leaves us in a spot where they may or may not flip essentially and then you have to wonder how Trump will or react they, or could they, he be par- could they be pardoned one or both of them what could Totally. And we've said that, you know, and we'll get into this later in the show, but that, you know, that the, the outcome here is probably not a criminal case against the president. It's a, it's a political issue. But whether or not these two guys flip really changes the calculus on on how how that sort of end game comes about. Now that we've gotten you caught up on the Manafort verdict and the Cohen plea, let's dig a little deeper on what this all means. We're joined today by white-collar expert Seth Waxman, a partner at Dickinson Wright and a former federal prosecutor. Thanks for being on the show with us, Seth. Thank you for having me. So, Seth, to get into the story, let's start, as we sometimes have to, with one of President Trump's tweets. He tweeted this week, quote, A large number of counts, 10, could not even be decided in the Paul Manafort case. Witch hunt! Exclamation point. So he's alluding to there that there was a mistrial on 10 of the 18 counts, but he was convicted on the other eight. So does this uh, mistrial portion mean what the president is implying that it means? It is a very little moment, if anything. I, there, there's no way to characterize this Manafort trial other than a sweeping victory for the government. To be convicted on eight counts, serious counts, of tax evasion, uh, bank fraud, and other charges will subject Mr. Manafort for 10 or more years in jail. And so the fact that there was a mistrial on 10 of those counts really is of li- very little moment, if at anything, at the end of the day. And that goes, and that even goes before saying that he's facing a whole other trial next month, right? 
Correct. He's got a D.C. trial coming up in the next month or so. He could be facing, well, he will face a series of additional charges that could result in even more jail time if there were convictions. So moving on to from Manafort to Michael Cohen, the, the news was that, you know, that there was a lot of news this week, but but sort of the, the, the real takeaway was that that in his plea deal on Tuesday that he implicated the president, that he said that that under oath that that the president that he had committed a crime at the at the direction of, of a candidate who was now the president um, to a casual conser- observer that that might sort of indicate that that Cohen was was working with prosecutors, that he was cooperating. But it seems like. Uh, that 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 wasn't the case from these from this plea deal that he filed. Could you could you sort of walk us through you know what what this was that he filed, what this plea deal was, and how that sort of differs from a situation where he really is sort of has has flipped. Yeah, this was a very unusual process that's taken place up in New York. Uh, it, it does not appear at all that Mr. Cohen is cooperating at this point. Two very important indications of that. One, most obviously, is that his lawyer, Mr. Davis, is still publicly asking for Mr. Mueller or the Southern District of New York to come in and meet with him. So that'd be the first indication. The other is that Mr. Cohen pled guilty to eight counts. That is incredibly unusual for a cooperator. Typically, prosecutors will pick one charge, right. a very serious charge, to have a cooperator plead to. And it very at the most, if there were three different categories of misconduct, say bank fraud, tax evasion, and campaign violations, maybe one charge from each one of those buckets. But to have him plead guilty to eight counts is just another solid indication that he has not currently got a cooperation agreement with the government. So Seth, what do you make of that? It feels very odd to all of us seeing that happen and knowing that he's not actively cooperating. What does this mean for Mueller moving forward? I mean, is there pressure Mueller can put on him to cooperate at this stage in the game? Yeah, I mean, he can cooperate at any time, and I agree with you. This is very unusual. Uh, You know, some of the thoughts I've had as to why that hasn't happened, and this is speculation on my part, but, you know, Mr. Gates and Mr. Flynn got very, very good deals from the government, essentially, as I understand it, probation-level offenses. Maybe Mr. Cohen wants that same kind of deal, and either the Southern District or Mr. Mueller aren't willing to give him, essentially, a get-out-of-jail-free. So that could be the disconnect. Uh, It could be that Mr. Cohen uh, doesn't have much to offer or the prosecutors don't want what he has. I find that highly unlikely. For the he's got a lot of tapes, so it seems like that (laughs) alone. He's got the tapes, and he was on record in a federal courthouse saying he can implicate the president. So that doesn't seem to be a logical explanation. But there is clearly a disconnect. Uh, Typically, at this stage, when someone would enter a plea where Mr. Cohen's making it obvious to everyone he wants to deal, and he's got information that this would have been signed, sealed, and delivered. So there is clearly a disconnect out there. So what would you expect? to, or, or rather, what would you be on the lookout for here in the next couple of weeks? We've gone over the fact that they're they're facing lengthy prison sentences. Manafort could be in jail for the rest of his life if it, if, if it, if it goes a certain way. Cohen, perhaps a little less. But I mean, what will you be watching for? I mean, can, can Mueller attempt to leverage convictions here um, from, you know, put on your prosecutor hat and talk us through like the nuts and bolts of exactly what we can expect from this stage going forward? Sure. I think the Manafort trial in Virginia and D.C. in large part has been about flipping Mr. Manafort. So I think that's what we should be watching for first. Is the D.C. trial going forward? You know, when the government in the next 10 days has to decide whether they're going to retry the 10 counts that were a mistrial in the Virginia case, whether that goes forward. To the extent either of those don't go forward, that would be a strong sign of cooperation. And then, of course, there's the X factor, something any former criminal prosecutor, defense lawyer, or expert or anyone really can't explain or or comment on with any degree of intelligence is whether Mr. Trump is going to pardon Mr. Manafort, which raises a whole other specter of potential issues, including whether that constitutes obstruction of justice. 
Seth, taken together, when we look at what what happened on Tuesday, it's it's so much to deal with. I mean, we we we've talked about it a lot on this show, but the, where, where where does this leave? Um, you know, what's the legal state of play for the, for the administration for for the Mueller probe? For all of us watching along from home, where does the events of Tuesday, you know, leave us legally? Yeah, I mean, it was clearly a watershed event in this investigation and potentially in this country's history to have the president's campaign manager and close lawyer to both be found guilty within an hour of each other, essentially, uh, was really a watershed event. And, you know, going forward, it leaves the Trump administration in, in frankly, disarray in many respects. And with Mr. Mueller, I think he will plow forward as he has in a methodical way. He is working up the latter uh, up into maybe including the president at some point, and he is conducting this investigation in a classic way a federal prosecutor conducts it, behind the scenes, silently and methodically obtaining convictions, guilty pleas, and cooperators, and in building uh, what I would assume is a massive document trail that we will only see upon which the time that Mr. Mueller issues a report that is made public, potentially. So, Seth, one thing that um, I think maybe is overlooked a little more than it should be The DOJ has a policy that they won't indict a sitting president. Can you talk a little bit about that and how, um, even if Mueller comes out with some blockbuster report, we won't really expect indictments if Trump is accused of, of crimes? Yeah, that is a um, strong area right now, obviously a big topic of discussion, and there are legal scholars on both sides of the fence on this one. I'm of the opinion, like many, that you cannot indict a sitting president, that the framers set up a process to remove a president, its impeachment proceedings, and to allow any prosecutor, federal or state, to use 12 jurors to upend the results of a national election is not the way it should be done. So you're correct. I don't believe there will be a criminal indictment against the president, even if there was the evidence to support it. That's not to say that people around him, including his son and son-in-law, potentially couldn't be indicted. But ultimately, I see this as it relates to the president as a political uh, decision that will be made in Congress with the American people. And I think that's in large part what explains the Trump-Giuliani strategy is is simply to play to their base. 30 to 40 percent of this country supports the president. At least that's what the polls say. And if that translates into 34 Republican senators, which the president would need in impeachment proceedings, if the House were, were to return articles of impeachment, it takes two-thirds of the Senate to remove a president. So there would need to be 34 Republican senators that stand by Mr. Trump's side and vote not to remove him. And I think that's what you know, Trump and Giuliani and his team are playing the long game on this. And they are trying to keep that base, solidify it, and hope that translates into those 34 Republican senators. Seth, it has been a crazy time. Thanks for coming on the show and helping break down what we might see next. Thank you so much for having me. our show is something offbeat and guys i think today we have the perfect one to stay on topic with all of our white collar crime yeah discussion today dc yeah white collar crime yeah you know it wasn't two weeks ago on the show where we did um a, uh, an up top segment about a sitting u.s congressman being indicted and right. the reason we wanted to do that on the show is because we were like well this doesn't happen every day sure we even <laughs> said that and uh while that's technically still true it appears it might now be happening every two weeks uh because just uh just this week uh california republican duncan hunter and his wife 
uh, Margaret Hunter, were indicted by a federal grand jury in California uh, for rampant misuse of $250,000 in campaign funds, mm -hmm. uh, ranging on everything from video games to uh, sort of lavish, expensive family vacations. Wow. Um, I mean, we're going to dig into some of the things they were spending money on, but how bad is this for them? I think it was a pretty lengthy indictment. Yeah, it's a 60 count indictment. <laughs> just your, Jeez. just just a gentleman's 60. <laughs> uh, and yeah, I mean, it basically, we've, as we heard earlier in the show, the nuances of election law and campaign finance law can be tricky, but all you need to know for the purposes of what we're talking about here is that when funds are earmarked as campaign funds, right. they are supposed to be spent on campaign activities. They are not supposed to be spent on things like the candidate and his family's fast food, movie tickets, golf outings, coffee, groceries, and home <laughs> utilities and cable bills. Now, yeah, yeah, that <laughs> seems pretty clear. Before we go any further, right? the name Duncan Hunter sounds you Familiar, and it's not just because it was a lax bro somewhere that you heard on the news. <laughs> right, it's because he's known for something else. What, what, what was that? Yeah, he became well. He he was he started serving in Congress in two thousand nine, but I, I think it was like a couple of years ago he became known on the internet uh, as the vaping congressman. And the reason for that is because he gained notoriety during a congressional hearing where he took out a vape pen and basically took a drag on the vape pen in the middle of the hearing. And kind of explain to people what the vape life was all about. There's nothing noxious about this whatsoever. This has helped thousands of people quit smoking. It's helped me quit smoking. And in the next decade or so, you're going to be able to inhale ibuprofen. You're going to be able to inhale your Prozac. And anything else that you need drug-wise, you're going to be able to in inhale it. This is the future. Smoking's going away. And the ability to, to take in nicotine or any other form of medication in the future will be in something like a vaporizer. And that was just kind of how he entered the, the 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 public consciousness. He was like an advocate for like, you know, to deregulate vaping. Like thought yeah. it was all he thought it was like too policed and all of so, this. So so if you didn't know him from that little tidbit. You there. definitely know him now if, uh, you, if you yeah. Yeah, what what are we gonna know him for now? Because it feels like um this scheme wasn't the most sophisticated. Yeah, yeah. Um, if you get a chance, and we're gonna we're gonna read you the highlights here, but just if you Google Duncan Hunter indictment, this is um a Cohen Brothers esque document. It basically walks through from the moment he began serving in the U.S. Congress in two thousand nine. Uh, the indictment sort of walks step by step every sort of misappropriation of campaign funds that him and his family did. And um, there's a very interesting sort of narrative uh, uh, through line here. And it's not only that while they were sort of profligate spending with campaign money, uh, the, dunk, the, the, the Hunter's personal finances were almost always on the brink of ruin or an right. actual ruin. Right. This he, is, had to, he had to sell his house at one point, right? This, or, yeah. yeah, I mean, this yeah. is from the indictment. They overdrew their personal bank account more than 1,100 times in a seven-year <laughs> period. This is about three times a week, every week for seven years. Um, can I just point out that there are things called... Uh, you know, overdraft protection. Well, right. uh, yeah. There's credit cards even. He I mean, there's up, options. He here. racked up about $37,000 worth of overdraft fees That's in insane. a seven-year period, which is really wild. I mean, some of that stuff leads to just very bleak. Uh, we're we're going to talk about some of the lavish stuff, but listen to this. On or about June 24th, 2010, in Alexandria, Virginia, Duncan Hunter spent $41.75 in campaign funds at 7-Eleven to purchase personal items, while also withdrawing $20 in cash from his personal savings account, leaving an account balance of six cents. 
Yeah. Well, he seems to be good at math, at least. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine going in and spending, yeah. like, swiping your campaign Guys, card? I'm just not sure if this whole democracy thing is for us. <laughs> I just don't know if it's it's not working great. Right. So let's get into some of the stuff that they were spending campaign money yeah. on. Because it seems like it was just really outrageous things that are clearly not related to the campaign. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the biggest one is the trips. There's, like, a $6,500 trip. Uh, to Hawaii, uh, and again, this is all sort of uh, 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 totaled over this seven-year period. Yeah. eleven thousand three hundred dollars worth of spending at Costco for groceries. Uh, Thirty-three hundred dollars at In-N-Out Burger. Uh, he's a California wow. congressman. Those are good burgers, Walter. Uh, that my, is so much money at In-N-Out Burger. Yeah, my personal favorite: six hundred dollars to fly his pet rabbit from California to DC for a family function. I also that's like that's my favorite too. I yeah. like some of the excuses that that, that were in this complaint. There oh, was yeah. one where I, he, yeah. he went golfing uh and and it was like it was some small amount. It was like two hundred dollars, but he was asked why and he just said I don't know. It was some kind of Christian thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was another one where um, he needed to buy some clothing, and his wife suggested he go do it at a pro shop, and then say that it was for golf balls for the uh, the wounded warriors. Wounded warriors. Yes, I have that one. The balls That's for the wounded terrible. warriors. That's pretty I mean, he was really so. You can see that they were coming up with line item answers that would make it sound like it was somehow campaign related. Yeah, well that, and that reminds me, that was the thing I forgot to say in the, in terms of like the, the indictments uh, narrative value. The other thing is this, the, the sad sack character of this of this campaign treasurer <laughs> who keeps popping up. Um, excuse me, uh, Duncan. Uh, we, we, uh, hello. Uh, yes. Uh, hi. Uh, we appear to have found some inconsistencies right. in the books. Yeah. Th- but basically, like the the unnamed treasurer just pops up and like has to field these like transparently like right. bald lies of excuses uh, from the Duncan, hunters. Uh, you appear to have spent about fifteen hundred dollars on video games. Uh, <laughs> You're and and Bill is not kidding around. By the way, that's an actual line in 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 the indictment. And the answer they gave to that one was that um, they blamed it on their son accidentally signing up for some recurring thing Classic. using the wrong card. Right, friend stole so. my phone. Amber used to live in D.C. This is the most D.C. thing ever. Okay, so one of these things, he spent $462 at a restaurant called El Tamarindo uh, on steak and 30 tequila shots for a bachelor party. <laughs> 30 tequila 30 shots shot. of tequila. I'm going to a bachelor party this weekend. I consider this a challenge from the congressman. Uh, Hunter, Hunter, hello. I, I don't mean to keep bothering you. Um... We've got something here on a $399 zipline ride. Um, but at this, anyway, I bring that up because this this uh, restaurant, Al Tamarindo, uh, uh, is offering now, I, I looked today on their Twitter, they said they're offering a steak taco tequila shot combo for 10 bucks. So wow. head, head down there. Um, the sort of coup de grace of this whole thing, though, I right. said it's, it sort of ranges from big and small. Um, the, the largest single expenditure at one time is a, just about $15,000 family trip to Italy. Mm. Uh, the hunters went, beautiful uh, country, their kids to Italy. Um, that one's really funny because in the, in the aftermath, he like sent some email to a, a supporter or someone in his office or whoever it was that was like, who asked him how the trip was. And he was like, boy, you know. If traveling was free, you'd never see me again. Northern <laughs> Italy is beautiful. I was like, well, it kind of was because it's not your money. I but think anyway. my big disappointment in this whole story is that there's no $32,000 blue suede couch. Or and an without that, I just coat. don't. Yeah, there's the no big, ostrich coat. Yeah, the, 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 the most money part of the entire uh, indictment, though, is regarding that trip to Italy. I'll just read it from you. This is sort of one of the few times they attempt to ex post facto 
justify the spending, and it goes like this. Um, In an attempt to justify the use of campaign funds to pay for the family's trip to Italy, Duncan Hunter attempted to set up a day tour of a U.S. naval facility in Italy. After Navy officials responded that they could only provide a tour on a particular date, Duncan Hunter said he would discuss the proposed date with Margaret Hunter, then subsequently told his chief of staff, tell the Navy to go f*** themselves. And no tour occurred. Wow. Well, I'm pretty thrilled we have a bleep on this show. (laughs) Um, Pretty wild. That'll be on the bottom of his uh, campaign, uh, like posters and whatnot. That seems like a good new. Well, it's funny you should say that. We would we're we're having a little fun here. I'd be remiss if I didn't at least say what he's said in his defense. He released a lengthy statement uh, today that basically said this investigation. Uh, is politically motivated. Uh, he pointed out that two of the prosecutors within the DOJ attended a Hillary Clinton rally. And and if we didn't say this before, he was one of the very early supporters of Donald Trump. He's an ardent Republican. Right. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, yeah. That 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 bears mentioning. But yeah, he basically said, uh, "My constituents are not easily misled. I know they can recognize a political agenda when they see it, and they can disregard empty rhetoric when they hear it." Um, I fought for our nation against terrorists in the Marine Corps. I fight for my constituents in the halls of Congress. I will fight in this same manner and with this same level of determination uh, because I believe in what I am fighting for and still have faith that evidence and the rule of law will trump political agendas and bias. So he's going to keep the good fight up. Um, you know, whatever happens here, innocent, guilty, he, he appears to have had some fun. And so I'd like to circle back to my previous statements about democracy. Um, I just like guys would I, like to register continued doubts. I haven't been on a vacation yet this year. I'd like Law 360 to give me $15,000 to well, go do that. See now. what we can do. All right. Well, that's it for today's show. Thanks for being with me, Bill. See you again next week, guys. And Alex. Thanks. I'd also like to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our guest, Seth Waxman, and contributing reporters this week, Pete Brush, Chuck Stanley, and Brian Koenig. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. If you want to know more about anything we talked about today, check out our website. It's law360.com slash podcast. You can subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher, and if you like it, we'd love for you to leave us a review. Thanks, and see you again next week.